So how did you get into sports? Like sports to the degree that you're in. Like I like baseball. I remember watching the Blue Jays when they won the World Series in 92, 93 and like love watching baseball games. And I still watch, like watching sports, especially live if I can watch a basketball game or a hockey game or whatever. But you are at a different level where you track like the trades of the players and like all of the behind the scenes stuff. Like, has it always been that for you? Or like, are you able to trace back like when you got that into sports? I don't think there was a particular moment. I, but yes, you're right. It's just always been being very engaged in sports has, it's always been part of my life. I remember when I was a kid and on Fridays I would stay up late and it wouldn't be to watch movies or TV shows or R rated films that were being broadcast. <laughs> I would actually stay up late to watch the local sports center. And I really enjoyed mm. that. And in the morning, I when the newspaper would come, I would first section I'd open is the sports section. I'd look at the scores and the standings and the the stats. I would watch news in the morning, mainly again for sports highlights. But I would end up absorbing other world information. I I remember one of my friends. She worked. Uh, sorry, her dad was a producer for that local sports show. Mm. And I mentioned to her, oh, I'm such a fan of that show, blah, blah, blah. So she actually managed to arrange for me to sit with with the hosts and the producers for, for one night before a show. And, and the guy's name was Joe, Joe Piscucci. He was the, the main host. And I was in high school at the time. And so... When I came and, and he he greeted me, he was like, "Oh, so I hear you're you know, wanting to get into sports journalism." And I was like, "No, I, I'm just a big fan <laughs> of you and, and your show, and I thought it'd be cool to mm. to, to just meet you and, and and watch how you do things." You know, now that I think about it, oh man, what a golden opportunity I had that I totally wasted. <laughs> Job offer? No, thank you. Just <laughs> yeah. Tell me about what you do. <laughs> a quick handshake and I'm gone. <laughs> So, so yeah, I mean, I, I, ironically, I'm not that, like, I don't play a whole lot of sports <clears throat> and my wife always gets, uh, gets annoyed at that, that she says I watch more sports than play. Um, but, uh, yeah, I know sports has just always been uh, a big, big part of my life. That's cool. I, it's interesting because I, my romantic storytelling side wants to treat that time you met that broadcaster as the turning point for you but it sounds like you were already a fan before you met them oh yeah absolutely like when i say I used to stay up late i mean i was like 10 11 years old and, and i'd stay up late to watch the sports center that's so interesting yeah i was curious how that emerged but i guess i guess we'll never know but it is a thing um yeah sports is interesting i think um maybe like i i like watching sports now and i like it to a certain degree, like looking at um, trying to imagine myself in the shoes of a player, like in the game, in the moment and the decisions you have to make and how, um, how much of like courage and all that is required in the moment. Um, but then there's this whole other dimension to it. Like the, the, the analytical side of it, how you actually form a team and get things together and all that. Um, that's super interesting too. Anyway. Um, so what are we talking about today? We're talking about second order thinking. Um, so yeah, 
and there's a image of a pond on the front page and it says what happens next so what did you think of this one i thought so i thought there was just really one one line mm. actually there was sorry there was yeah yeah you know, there's two two lines actually that that really really stood out to me the first was when they said you can never delete consequences to arrive at the original starting conditions. And I thought like, that's, hmm. that's very, very insightful when you take a moment to, to think about it. Often when we make decisions, we think about, okay, can this decision be reversed? The reality is decisions can't really be reversed. We can't, really go back to a previous state. And I actually learned this lesson when I was at, at Shopify and then Toby, the CEO and founder, during an AMA, I, I asked him about a decision he had made and and I said, oh, what would cause you to reverse that decision? And he told this anecdote about for, for coders and when you, you know, check stuff in, you you can't, once you've checked something in, like you've, you've inherently changed the state of, of, of a code base and you might realize that whatever changes you made were a mistake you can't really delete it all, all, all you can go in the code and and rewrite the code or, or delete the code that you added and check that in but you're not really reversing like re- reversing what you made all you're doing is just again once again cha- changing the state so I, I I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about decisions and behaviors and actions that you can never really reverse anything. All you can do is if there's unintended consequences is uh, not reverse what you've done, but try and move to a state where those consequences have, have limited impact. So that was like the first line that really, really jumped out at me. And then the second one, which I think really sums up the entire chapter (laughs) is this idea of, when you make a decision or you're trying to analyze a decision. So there's a first order effects, which usually are are, are pretty obvious and, and maybe help you achieve some, some short-term goal. But then it, it said, we must ask ourselves a critical question and then what? To me, that was the, the heart of this whole concept of second order thinking. It's not when you're making decisions, when you're taking actions, it's not enough to think, oh, I will uh, I, I, I will buy, buy a house. I'll, let me take my, my own family as an example. Uh, we, will, we will move to Kitchener and, and, and we will buy a home in, in Community X. And the first order effect was, hey, I was going to be closer to work. But the second order effect is, well, how is that going to impact things like schooling for our children when they get school age? How is that going to impact our ability to to, uh, to connect with uh, with our family who were were at the time and then still remain a big part of our life? Like, are we moving to a place where it's going to be tougher or or easier for them uh, to, to to reach us? Is the community then uh, the the area we're targeting is that close to amenities like the grocery store, the mall, stuff like that, or is it pretty pretty far mm. away? So it's kind of a, a trivial example, but 
but but that question of and then what? I think anytime you're trying to analyze a, a situation or you have a decision to make, just asking that of yourself and then what can be really powerful in, in helping you think through what might be some second order effects that will happen because of the decision that you made. When we were in Waterloo and I had the offer to move to Microsoft and move to Seattle, then I remember talking to my parents about it. And I said, I'm just going to move here for, I think, two to five years or so, right? Like, give it a shot, do this job, and then I can always come back, right? I'm still Canadian. I still have a network. Canada's still home. And they said, maybe, but once you're there, like, and then what? And I kind of resisted thinking about the second order effect, which was once you're there, then you start to build a community, you start to this starts to become home. And now I've been here for like 16 years and I totally get it, right? That um, there's the second order effect of like, once you move somewhere, then it's not just the job you take. And even if that part is easy to change, everything else changes around it too. And then also just to go back to inertia, the longer I'm here, the harder it is to move. And that's also a second order effect, right? Like the, um, the time related to that. So yeah, that's really insightful. I think that's a nice, that's a nice thing to hold on to and a nice kind of mental check. I like that, that that's one of the things you brought up that when you're especially making a decision, I guess, what, and then what as the consequence of the decision. And to your point about you can't really reverse changes. It, the first thing I thought of was as a parent, I guess, that idea of apologizing when you do something wrong, like, like I try to be as patient as I can as a dad, but inevitably like I'm tired and like one of our kids does something and draws on the wall or throws something. And at that moment I'm like, Oh, what are you doing? And that's not right. Or no, thank you or whatever. And like more assertive than I need to be. And then like we calm down and I say, look, I'm sorry. What you did was wrong. But at the same time, I should be cool about it. But apologizing doesn't undo what I did before. Right. And I think something I learned as a dad was, my thought was, well, once I apologize and we talk about it, they get it. And that kind of um, kind of is a way to eliminate kind of what happened before and move forward. But it's still moving forward in a healthy way and addressing what's there. But once once you take an action, like losing your temper, you never really can undo it. You can talk about it later and you can take steps to avoid it in the future, but you can't really undo it. So I think that's really insightful that you bring that up as a takeaway because i think definitely personally for me i've held on to that as a reminder as much as possible before i even take some action that i'm gonna regret can i take a second and think about it knowing that there's never really any going back yeah and and it's not like just because you can't fully reverse a decision or fully reverse an action it doesn't mean you shouldn't take take action mm, mm-hmm in, in, in the chapter even talks about this, right? Like you shouldn't, just because you're trying to think of second and third order effects of, of a path forward, like you, sh- you still need to walk a path where right? you can't go through analysis paralysis. Otherwise, hmm. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I can just imagine you and I sitting at a restaurant uh, <laughs> and, you, and you're like, I'm going to order the lasagna. And then what, Rohit? <laughs> and then I will eat it. And then what, Rohit? <laughs> Half an hour later. All right, 2045, when the polar ice caps are at this level, then, yeah. 
uh, yeah, uh, but um, yeah, just because you can't reverse a decision doesn't mean you you shouldn't make a decision. I think the the point is that if you put a little bit of of effort into thinking about the and then what, and you try to be practical about it as well. You try and think, yeah, okay, I could come up with infinite number of and then what's, but you know what's the probability of of any of those things actually happening? So there's there's a little bit of a, a little bit of an art and judgment call on how much of those second order effects do you need to think about and and weigh against the decision that you're making. Right. And maybe even making one of them is enough. Like that, that one like thought that not just this decision that I'm making, but what's the next step after that, even that might be enough. Right. And maybe the bigger the decision, the more you want to think it through. If I'm changing my career, my house, a relationship, but if I'm making a smaller decision, deciding on a particular project or whatever, still just taking that second and being like, okay, if I do this, then what happens after that? That that might be enough. Yeah, and you know, like uh, tying this into work a little bit, one of my um, one of the framings that I'll often use in work when I'm getting buy-in from senior leaders on on some initiative is um, I think it's called like the quintessential consultant, and it's basically just like a way to frame all of your analysis and stuff, but one and, and, and how to like very succinctly deliver a, a story to, to uh, senior execs. And so there's at the end of it is actually this one piece called like risk management or like what might go wrong or something like that. And that's a little bit of that. And what, so you've identified a problem, you've proposed some solutions You've described what the impact of the solutions are going to be, but you also need to talk about what might go wrong and what is your plan to mitigate those risks? Or what is your plan if things go off the rails, how are you going to uh, address them? And Mm -hmm. just putting in, again, putting in some of that thought, being intentional about that and then what makes it so much easier to sell a story to get get by it makes it so much easier for that person you're trying to persuade makes it so much easier for that senior exec to give their thumbs up and and say yeah i support this i see what you're doing go ahead come back in three months tell me how it's going oh that's great yeah that you hear about this advice when like starting a new job from people who've done this before that that idea of like always look for the exits that when you start a new job, then keep in mind, and then what, like, what are you doing next? And have that, even if you're not constantly interviewing, just thinking about what it is you're doing after that. I like that. I think your really nicely put quintessential consultant idea is that even at a project level, like you're about to do something, what's next? What are the effects of that too? And I like that as a way to approach anything. And I think it's really interesting that it's a way to inspire confidence in people because I guess our tendency, and I know my tendency sometimes is to look for the most optimistic path, that happy path of here's how everything's going to go great. But what inspires confidence in people, especially in perhaps senior people or experienced people is not necessarily painting a rosy picture, but painting an honest one of, to the best of our knowledge, here's the things that we anticipate that could go well or not go well after that. And it doesn't mean that we don't take action, 
but at least we can do it with our eyes wide open. Yeah, and again, the the point of the exercise is not to think of all possible things that could go wrong. It's just an acknowledgement, like you said, an honest picture. Like I like that phrasing. Uh, it's an honest picture of what could go wrong, and here's how we're we're thinking about it. Um, uh, just so this idea of second second order thinking, I, I I think it's it's really just about. I, yeah, I don't see this as a mental model so much as as it's just a muscle that you need to develop. And, you know, at, at first you'll be very, very intentional and about uh, consciously asking yourself, and then what? Uh, but I think like any muscle, as you exercise it and use it, it just becomes a natural part of your, your thinking. So what you're saying is we're basically like the Avengers in Endgame, where we can't go back and change the past, but we can mess around with the timeline create new paths and we can't think through all the consequences of what will happen, but we do have to take some action. That's exactly what I'm saying. Exactly uh, what saying. You, yeah. We need to time travel. Uh, <laughs> we need to get, get pin particles. Uh, which, which Avenger would you be? Which Avenger would I would be? You know, I've always liked Captain America. I think it's simple to me. Um, well, you are he, uh, now a U.S. citizen. So yeah, you, that's you, why. You can be Captain America. <laughs> That's, that was that was it. Yeah, as soon as you take the oath, then something changes. Um, can can you so- can you imagine showing up to the to the the, um, the oath ceremony wearing a Captain America costume? That'd be that'd be awesome. That would be awesome. <laughs> start, I think start throwing a shield around. <laughs> <laughs> start accusing all the people there of being Hydra agents. That would be amazing. <laughs> How do we know I can trust you? Yeah, that would be that'd be something. Yeah. Uh, so you'd, you'd be Captain America. Mm, who would I like to be? I don't know. I like Black Panther. He was uh, he was cool. You know, he had that suit. He was a king of a country. It sounds pretty appealing. You would get your own country. That's true. Captain America was basically had a motorcycle <laughs> and a shield. <laughs> And a shield. So, I uh, yeah, from a stuff point of view, I think that makes a lot of sense. Actually, here's a question: what What Avenger would you not want to be? Like, oh. if you could choose, but you, you didn't want to be them. Which Avenger would I not want to be? Ant Man, maybe. Like, <laughs> you know, all he all he does is just get big and small. Like, you know, there's some practicality to that, but. This feels like a very niche, you know, niche, niche um, <laughs> set of powers. You know what I mean? I guess like the experience of being Ant-Man is more fun to watch than to be like crawling through like caterpillar feces or whatever he has to do to like yeah. achieve his missions. That sounds pretty awful. Yeah. But like when you watch it, it's like, oh, cool. He can do all this. But you're constantly fearing death from like a mosquito sneezing at you. And all your missions are gross. Yeah, that's a good choice. I was, I was gonna say, is Bucky an Avenger like the 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 Winter Soldier? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. They, I never watched that show, but that that seemed like he's an assassin with a bunch of extra abilities. But I mean, he's got some major PTSD. That's for sure. Yeah, that seems like another tortured one. But between that and Ant Man, yeah, PTSD you can work on, but crawling through feces, I don't know. <laughs> 
that I wouldn't want to do either. There's there's some major second order effects there that I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he is not considered. <laughs> Any anytime someone asks him to do something, he should just say, "And then what? <laughs> what are the second That's order it. effects?" Because he basically has the same opportunity as Iron Man, right? Like he's a dude with no special ability, but he is able to put on a suit and achieve great things. But in Iron Man's case, he's like wealthy and like does all these exotic things and flies around. And in Ant-Man's case, he's crawling through muck and sitting on the backs of ants and stuff. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a lot less fun. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we're at time. Uh, but right. uh, that's a good good note to end on. Which Avengers we would be, and more importantly, which ones we would not. <laughs> see you next time. All right. See you next time.